P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Good morning and welcome from P.I.'s Declassified. Today, I'm excited to have Kimberly Hamilton, a private investigator from North Carolina. I'm always excited to have another woman investigator on the show because I think we bring um, a little different um, scenario to our work than um, maybe our male counterparts. But welcome, Kimberly. Welcome to the show. Hey, Fancy. Thank you so much for having me today. And do you go by Kimberly or Kim? Kimberly, please. Okay, very good. All right. So um, it's always so interesting to start to uh, talk to people about how they started out. And, you, I, and uh, I know you've done a lot. I mean, you've authored a book and you've, you've been on uh, the board of directors of your state association and you've done a lot of things. So let's just talk about how you even got involved in this crazy business of private investigation. Well, back in 2000, um, I was actually considering going into law enforcement at that time. And with having, at that time I had four kids, single mom, and law enforcement just wasn't going to work out for my time schedule and all that. And someone made the suggestion about becoming a private investigator. And I'd never Hmm. really thought about it, um, but I considered it. I liked the idea of it. I've always liked this type of work. And how I got started was not typical in any way. I actually found the name of another PI that was local here to me. And in North Carolina, to get your license, you have to be sponsored by another PI and work for them for 3,000 hours until you can get Mm -hmm. your full license. Well, I just happened to call this guy up and say, hey, I want to be a PI. Let's meet for lunch. I've got all my paperwork. I want you to hire me. And, you know, let's just meet. And... So we did, we met, and he signed the paperwork, and I was instantly hired. And that's not typically how you go about finding a sponsor or anything. And that's kind of how the whole career just started. Um, yeah, he didn't even blink an eye. He just said, okay. No, he didn't. He just was like, okay. I told him what I, you know, my situation, what I wanted to do, my interests, and all that kind of stuff. And it was just a go from there. And, you know, now I get all the time, calls all the time asking, oh, are you hiring? Are you willing to sponsor me? And, or do you know someone who's willing to sponsor? And it's actually a difficult process. And, but I just kind of, I'm going to do this and this is how we're going to do it and got it done. So that's how I became or got my PI associates in North Carolina and worked towards getting my own license. And what was it that, what got you interested what drew you to the business? Um, like I said, I've always been interested in law enforcement. I'm actually from Chicago and grew up there and moved to North Carolina and wasn't too sure, you know, with having kids and being a stay-at-home mom, what, I, what career I wanted to choose. But I've always been fascinated. I've always been curious. I've always been great at talking with people, um, writing, stuff like that. And I like the idea of law enforcement, and I did go into law enforcement for a few years later, but, you know, just 
um, the idea of being a private investigator, of finding out information. I always believe that, you know, the truth is out there. And, you know, mm-hmm. you can have he said, she said, and somewhere in the middle is that truth. And I've always been the type of person, you know, not to take one side or the other and, you know, be curious about that truth in the middle. So it just kind of, you know, once I started thinking about the idea, I just went with it. And it just unfolded from there. And, Kimberly, did you actually work in law enforcement for a while? I did. In 2004, I turned in my PI license, and I was hired by our local sheriff's department. And I was hired, I was sworn in and hired, and then they sent me to training. I had investigative background then, and my goal was to go into a um, detective division with the sheriff's department. But once I got hired mm-hmm. and went to the training and all that, um, I found I liked being on the road. And I was the only female deputy on the road at the time. And I enjoyed it, and I liked working with people, and I liked what I did, but I missed investigations. And, you know, in law enforcement, your hands are tied of what you can do and what you cannot do. And I really missed the investigative part and, you know, being my own schedule and working the cases that I really felt the need, that needed the attention and needed to be worked. So I left the Sheriff's Department and went back and got my PI license. And I've hmm. stayed there since. Interesting. Yeah, I did it backwards. I went from PI to law enforcement back to a PI. And most PIs in North Carolina are formal law enforcement, and then they go retire or leave and go on to get their PI license. I kind of, I don't do things the typical way. (laughs) I can tell. I can tell. That's great. Uh, So, you want to mention this this, uh, enterprising man that hired you to begin with? Um, actually, I don't even think he's around anymore. He's, I think he moved to Florida years and years ago. I, I don't even think he's in North Carolina anymore. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Very good. So not only that, not only have you launched a private investigation agency, which is just unusual by itself for a, for a woman, uh, actually, and uh, you've been in law enforcement for a short period of time. You've also written a book. You're a mom. I don't know how mm-hmm. you do you have any time? <laughs> um, a little bit here and there. <laughs> I sleep every other Thursday. We joke about that, but yeah, yeah. It keeps me busy. There you go. So, uh, tell us about your book. Um, my book is called Missions and Mayhem: The Adventures of Female Private Investigator, and I published that last year and is available on Amazon. And what this book is is a bunch of chapters with different stories of cases I have worked or papers I have served or encounters that have happened while in the course of this profession. I wrote the book because, you know, as a private investigator, when you're introduced to somebody or you tell them a private investigator, you know, everybody's so fascinated with it. They're like, I bet you have great stories. And Mm -hmm. I teach several classes, and I found that, you know, they didn't care about what I was teaching. They wanted to hear the stories. And it was everywhere I went, oh, I bet you got interesting stories. Tell me something funny. Tell me about your craziest case. And that kind of inspired me to write the book and come up with the idea of missions and mayhem. And I'm the type of person, my, I have crazy energy. Anywhere I go, I attract crazy situations, crazy people, and just weird things happen to me. And that's kind of how we came up with the title. But my book is, the subtitle in the book on the cover is, Everyone Has a Story. And I am so adamant about, you know, which each case we take in, you know, there's, there's someone's story to this long before we take that retainer, and it's going to continue long after we submit that report. And these are people's lives. This is, you know, our work has the capability of impacting them financially, their family situation, you know, sometimes prison time, 
you know, there's a lot more to our work than just what we sit in the office and do at our desk. And mm-hmm. my stories, wanted, I wanted to portray that more in my stories. Um, when I teach my classes, too, um, a couple of them I have asked, what is, when you think of a private investigator physically, what do you see or what do you imagine? And the typical answer is a retired police officer, short, bushy mustache, cigar hanging from his mouth, and, you know, doing illegal stuff, breaking into places, getting this information, stalking people. And I really kind of wanted to debunk that as well. You know, that's not the typical what you see on TV and movies is not your typical private investigator. You know, there is a purpose right. to the stories that we do. We do affect people's lives. Um, sometimes we run into funny situations. Sometimes, you know, it's dangerous situations. Um, there's a lot of inspiring stories. I've met so many wonder pe- wonderful people along the way. And each chapter in my book is kind of a story that portrays something to do with that. So that is why I wrote the book and, you know, Everybody, so everybody could read the stories. I wouldn't have to tell them over and over and over again. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of requests for a part two. Um, and I do believe, you know, private investigators, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to talk about my stories. I don't want to talk about my cases. And I believe you can talk about things, just like, you know, in law enforcement. You can talk about your arrest. You can talk about stuff you're working on, but you don't have to give details. You don't have to give names. You can give the meaning right. behind it and all that kind of stuff. It's okay to share your stories. It's okay to share, I'm helping this person go through this divorce whose you know, husband's making hundreds of thousands of dollars and he's giving her nothing. You know, there's a reason why we do our work. And mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of like more of what the stories portray. And what kind of classes are you teaching somebody? What do you teach? You're really muffled. I can barely hear you now. I'm, I'm sorry. We've had some technical issues here. Where do you teach? What kind of classes do you teach? Um, right now, I teach classes on human trafficking, um, mostly awareness in North Carolina and why it's such a problem here. I do teach an ethics class, which I try to make my classes the not boring, mundane. I'd rather be having a root canal ethics class. Everybody has sat through those kind of ethics classes. <laughs> I like to really take my classes and bring in a lot of scenarios related to private investigative um, scenarios. And, you know, and have, mm-hmm. it's like an open discussion, interactive class, and really get down and listen to different people's opinions. Because you know, we run into a lot of scenarios ethically that, you know, yes, there's maybe a right answer, maybe they're not. You know, there's always that gray area, and what do you do? when you are faced with something like that. So I'm teaching that ethics class. I teach someone process serving. I teach, um, it's like paralegal associations, stuff like that, in, on process serving with paralegals, educating them on, yeah, you don't have to use a sheriff's department in North Carolina all the time. You have options to get your paper served. So those are the classes. I'm working on a body language and communications class, which I'm going to um, start teaching as well, because I think in our line of work and paralegals, you know, being able to read somebody, their body language, being able to communicate properly is so important to our jobs that, you know, a lot of people are missing out by not knowing some of this stuff. So we're going to start that class as well. That's fabulous. Now, so these classes, are they mainly for private investigators? Do you teach at a community college or how does that work? I do them locally and I do them through the North Carolina Private Protective Services. Um, Three of my classes are approved for continuing education hours for licensees, so mainly private investigators and then, like I said, the paralegals. I've done community classes more on the human trafficking awareness 
and, you know, how to report it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, is, um, I'm, I'm asking this out of ignorance. Is uh, North Carolina a heavy human trafficking area? It is. We are actually eighth um, on the list of states in um, the United States of human trafficking issues. Um, I think we're like third on the number of human trafficking calls made into the national hotline. It, North Carolina has a huge human, human trafficking problem. Um, it's, we have I-40 corridor going, which runs through North Carolina going down to Florida, and along that route, you know, the hotels and all that kind of stuff is a major contributing factor. Our, we've got a lot of military bases. We've got a sports team. Um, our state is very high in domestic violence, very low in cheap housing, very low income. Um, we have a terrible education system, very low on education. Mm-hmm. Um, a high number of runaways and children in group homes and foster care and all those factors contribute to human trafficking. And, you know, given I-40 runs right down through it, you know, human trafficking is a mobile crime. You know, you can go to one city and work there for a month and, you know, someone gets a tip or something and you just move on to the next one. And it's hard for, you know, it's hard to prosecute a crime when, you know, sometimes the victims don't even know they're victims. And we have a lot of labor trafficking here. We have a high Hispanic population. Um, you know, a lot of labor camps, a lot of businesses hiring these people. And, you know, they're not, they don't know the rights. They don't know that, you know, you don't have a supervisor taking all your money and just giving you room and board. So there's a lot of factors here in North Carolina. And when I went through That's basic law enforcement... I would, I would not, if I were to pick a state, I would not, uh, North Carolina wouldn't even be on the radar. So uh, it's very interesting, but I can I understand the uh, the, the uh, pathway from Florida for sure that runs right through North Carolina. So that that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, when I went through law enforcement training back in 2004, I think I heard the word human trafficking mentioned one time. But now, within the last five years, law enforcement is now going through training just specifically for human trafficking. There's a lot more associations and groups you know, helping the victims, placing them, you know, taking a victim here and placing them in a different city, trying to get them help, trying to get them temporary housing. In the last five years, it's really, really gotten some attention um, thanks to the national hotline and people calling in and making reports that I think it's finally changing, but it is definitely a huge problem here. Hmm. And so are you actually doing uh, active cases with human trafficking or are you just... Um, giving education about it? I'm basically just teaching about awareness and education about it. There's not a lot of cases to actually investigate unless, you know, I've I've had a few where parents have hired me, they've got a teenage daughter, or I had one case where the husband hired me, his wife was doing drugs, hanging around with wrong people, and you know, because I knew about human trafficking and the factors that contribute to it, you know, I was able to ask some questions. You know, you know, with a husband and his wife, you know, her whole family was like, she's never done this before. It's like she's wanting to do this. And the, what, had, what comes out of the story is she actually started stripping to make some extra money and not tell her husband, got into some drugs, got involved with the wrong people, and they continually used her 
and threatened to tell her family, you know, she was going to lose her kids, you know, all this kind of stuff if she didn't continue working for them. Most people think Mm -hmm. human trafficking is these big, you know, sex shop operations with a lot of people and girls and all that kind of stuff. But actually, human trafficking can only be three people, you people, you know, the person who's actually doing the trafficking, the victim, and then the client. So a human trafficking operation can only consist of three people. And, you know, with the... A lot of runaways, too. You know, we know what questions to ask. You know, one family had their daughter, their 16-year-old, who was constantly in trouble. And when she was brought to juvenile and all that kind of stuff, it was like she was happy about it. And I remember the mom making the comment, like, well, she got brought into juvie again last night, and she was so excited. She's wanting to just ruin our family name. You know, she's not been brought up like this, but why was she so happy that she was arrested? And by asking some questions... We figured out that she was happy that she was being arrested because she was getting away from the people doing this to her. She was afraid to mm-hmm. say anything, mm-hmm. and which is a totally different perspective. And when you have sure. these cases like runaways and stuff like that, you think, well, maybe this isn't, they're not doing it because they want to. Maybe they're trapped. Maybe they got into a situation, made some bad choices, and now they have no choice but to stay, and they're scared to speak up. So For not sure. a, yeah, lot a, a lot of actual... Uh, there's a lot of private investigators across the nation. I wouldn't say a lot. There's a good number of private investigators across the nation that are recovering sex trafficking victims. They're going out yes. and, and bringing them back to reality and working with them through their, their process and their in- intervention. I agree. And sometimes, you know, like runaways or, you know, missing people, it's not that they, like I said, they're not doing this on purpose. It's not that they want to stay away. They just, they're trapped. And, you know, when you get to that situation, knowing what kind of questions to ask and knowing about human trafficking, you may, it may be a human trafficking case. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and when you go talk to parents, um, what kinds of flags would give you the idea that maybe they were being, the child or the teenager was being trafficked? What kinds of things would you look for? Well, you look for, you know, what kind of family life they have. You know, if, you know, mom and dad are always fighting, police are there every Friday night, you know, the child's run away, kind of stuff like that. You know, maybe the child is running away because they just actually want to run away. If it's a totally different situation where, you know, the parents said, well, she's been raised in the church, she's got great grades, and all of a sudden, you know, she started hanging around with this one person, and it's like a different girl now. She's not my daughter anymore. Something's not right. She's very depressed. She's, you know, hiding things. And, you know, not just, you know, someone, a teenage girl being a teenage girl. There's some clues there, you know, disappearing. We can't um, get in touch with her through her cell phone, you know, stuff like that. You know, then you know kind of to ask some questions and then, you know, find out who she's been hanging around with, talk to her friends, talk to, you know, teachers, you know, people involved in her church who may know this person and say, this is just not typical of her. We never saw this coming and, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So those are kind of some questions to ask, you know, to figure out, you know, is it human trafficking or is it she's just out getting in trouble? So what, what is it about human trafficking that has drawn you to that area of uh been teaching about it? I think, you know, with my own kids and growing up with your mom in law enforcement and private investigative work, you know, my kids were always very 
cautious of things, and they knew what the real world out there was like. And, you know, hearing some of their friends and what they were getting into and, you know, having um, local colleges around here, you know, I, I also coached volleyball for high school JV teams, and, you know, I really see these kids and some of these things that they get into, and it really scares me. You know, they don't know mm-hmm. who they're talking to on the Internet. They don't know going to his college party what it's going to be like there. And, you know, my house was always the one where there was probably 10 kids there at all times, just from all the friends and hang out, and all the parents were at my house was a safe house to hang out. And, you know, I really got to know and love some of these kids, and it just concerned me about their safety and the choices that they were making and them being naive about, you know, what is really out there in the world. And so I started, you know, talking about, you know, educating parents, having classes um, for them as well, and, you know, social media skill, you know, GPS trackers on cars to know where they're at, you know, stuff like that. So I think the interest in, you know, just general young adults and teens and knowing it's such a problem here, and, you know, nobody's immune to this. It's in everybody's community. It's in probably everybody knows somebody who's gotten involved. Their kids gotten involved with drugs or hanging around with the wrong crowd. And it can happen to anybody, literally. And to me, that's really scary. We live in a very small town, small county. Everybody knows each other. We kind of watch over each other's kids. And so when something bad happens to one of them, it's like it happens to all of us. So I yeah, think, sure. you know, just protecting our kids and, you know, educating people and educating the kids, too, that, you know, when you see this ad online saying, oh, you're, we're going to make you a model or we're going to pay you this or we want you to come do this, we're going to give you a cell phone and all that, those are big red flags. That is not something that, oh, you're just getting lucky and you're going to get a great job. You know, we've got to create, let them know that, you know, it's dangerous out there. And if you're not careful, you can easily wind up on that side of it. That's absolutely for sure. Uh, Kimberly, we need to take a quick break. Um, I have a lot to ask you about, so we'll be right back. Right back with Kimberly Hamilton. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Kimberly Hamilton, North Carolina investigator, private investigator. Our company is Female Agents Incorporated. And one of the things that um, has struck me about Kimberly's background is she's had some personal challenges that I think have, um, personally think, has given her the heart for the business that she's in. And I'm going to leave it up to you, Kimberly, to talk about it, uh, about your um, obstacles and challenges you have with your children and how that's led you where you are today. Yeah, we can talk about this. Um, one of the questions that I am very uncomfortable answering right now and right now is, you know, people meet me and talk about my work and they say, how many children do you have? And I'm okay talking about it, but it's just I'm not sure how to answer that. And hmm. being the type of person I am, I'm not afraid to talk about things. So I have had six children, and... In 1995, I had a son. His name was Nicholas, and he was born with trisomy 18, and he also passed away on the day he was born. So I lost one son that way, and, you know, it taught me a lot. It's every parent's worst nightmare. It's, you know, it's hell. I mean, for lack of a better term, I'm sorry, but it's just excruciating painful to go through something like that. And trisomy... Trisomy 18 is a genetic disorder. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a genetic disorder. Um, if anybody's familiar with Down syndrome, that is actually trisomy 21. That's an extra um, 21 chromosome. And trisomy 18 is just a different form of a genetic disorder where you have an extra 18th um, chromosome. And children with trisomy 18, is also known as Edwards syndrome, often are born with deformed hearts, spina bifida, club feet, um, organs that haven't developed properly, and we did not find out until I was seven months pregnant with Nicholas that he actually had Edwards syndrome. So I opted to continue to go through the pregnancy, um, give birth just like any um, other labor and everything. Um, less than 1% of children born with trisomy 18 make it to the first birthday. So he was born with um, a severe hole in his heart, three-chamber heart, and he just—he was only two pounds at birth, where given my other kids were seven, eight, nine pounds, I had very large babies, he was very small when he was born. And there was just no way his heart um, could sustain anything, or he, could he go through an, a heart transplant or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. And there's not, there's not a lot education out there on trisomy 18 either and you know I'm very comfortable talking about that so um, what, what number of children was he was he the last one 
the last child? No, he was actually, I had, when Nicholas was born, I had two boys who were seven and five and had a daughter who was 19 months old. So I, we had Nicholas, and he was actually my fourth child. And three years to the day, almost to the day that he um, was born, I had my second daughter. And so let's see, 19 years later, there's 19 years difference between my youngest and my oldest. So um, (laughs) at one time I had, for three years, I had one in preschool, one in elementary school, one in middle school, one in high school, and one in college. You talk about craziness, and I think that's, I attribute a lot of that to how I can multitask and be able to manage everything. If I can handle all those kids, I can handle any business, because it was just crazy for a while. So that, um, after my last son was born, who was now 11, I had five children. And this past October, my second son, who was 27, actually overdosed from a um, heroin um, dose that was laced with fentanyl. He had been going through some issues with his, just some personal issues with some family members and, you know, out of college, couldn't find a job, in student debt. There's a lot of things. And he was at the age where his health insurance was dropped, couldn't find a job. He's been going through a lot. And like a lot of kids, um, particularly, you know, males between the ages of 20 and 30 right now, he made some stupid choices. And he made a choice that cost him his life. He was supposed to be at my house in the afternoon, didn't show up, wasn't answering his phone. And, you know, being a mom, you know when something's not right. I mean, yeah, he may have missed my phone calls before in the past, and, oh, he's sleeping, he's doing stuff, he left his phone, you don't think about it. But that day I knew something was wrong. So I drove, he lived about 30 minutes away from me, drove out there, and I'm actually the one who found him. And it was the roughest moment of my life. And since then, um, two of his friends, including one of his best friends, have also overdosed and died from this fentanyl-laced drug opioid epidemic. This epidemic in everywhere is getting out of hand, and we are up to two to three overdoses per day now with these local counties of these kids making stupid mistakes, going to a party, doing something, and, you know, experimenting with drugs that they may not know is very safe. And for those, you know, fentanyl is a cheap filler for heroin and other drugs that they add to it, and I believe Mm -hmm. that it's one-tenth of an actual heroin dose of fentanyl can kill you. So if you've got somebody who's mixing these drugs and, you know, selling them to these people who don't know, you know, one little slip of a mix is a deadly dose, and it's an instant death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And since my son Matthew passed, and I, I've learned a lot, um, you know, this is not uncommon. It's very sad. It's very heart-wrenching. But this opioid epidemic has got to has got to stop. And, and a lot of people say, well, why doesn't law enforcement just go out there and arrest these kids? And it's not that easy. You know, law enforcement can only enforce the laws that are there, and they can only, you know, when they get to court, you know, our justice system, we don't get the convictions we need. We don't, they get slapped on the wrist or back out. They say, well, we want, you know, whoever sold to them. And, you know, given the number of drug dealers out there and people doing this for our number of law enforcement, it's just a battle that we're not winning right now. And I'm really looking into, I'm actually on the board right now for Alamance Citizens for a Drug-Free Community, and I'm really starting to push awareness on this opioid epidemic. 
and, you know, the use of Narcan, you know, getting that out there and getting that in police officers' hands, you know, it's being handed out now to known drug users just in case, you know, there's an overdose and, you know, someone can't get there in time. But mm-hmm. in my research and all this kind of stuff, I'm learning that it is between, you know, the young males that, like I said, who are in student debt, who can't find a job that pays, you know, health insurance and all that kind of stuff. And it's taken our boys one by one. I think in the last year I know, I've known seven in that age group that I've attended That's amazing. Middle school. That's amazing. It is. And, and there's also, you know, young men also have a risk-taking behavior that uh, they're not, um, their brains, they found that their brains are not fully developed yet, and so they have a tendency to take more risks than, than maybe they, their female component. So uh, it, it all fits together. And, and it does. Really, and how, do you cope with, how do you cope with what happened to you with your son? Um, what are, what one hour at a time. And I am, a, I am an optimist by heart. And, you know, I'm always looking at the bright side of things. And I don't mean to sound, make this sound any worse, but my thing is always, you know, when something happens to you, I don't like to use, why is this happening to me? Why did this happen to Matthew? Why did this happen to my family? I like to change it around and say, why did this happen for Matthew? Why did this happen for me? Why did this happen for my family? You know, I can't focus on the negative. I can't. It will eat you alive. I went through the guilt when Nick died. Um, even though it was a genetic disorder, nothing that I could have done, I went through the natural stages of the guilt, and it was my fault, and I was being punished, and I could not allow myself to do that this time. Um, so I changed my thinking a little bit. You know, why did this happen for Matthew? And it's not, you know, you don't want this to happen, but you've got to look for the good in it. And if you don't look for the good in it, it can, it can eat you up. It can destroy you. My 11-year-old had a really hard time with it. Um, he you know, being 11, you understand death, but not a whole lot. He was feeling the emotions, mm-hmm. but he didn't understand why. So, you know, I had to be strong for him. I had to, you know, I still had a business to run. I still had bills to pay. It's amazing. You still got laundry to do. You still got to walk the dogs. So all that kind of stuff does not stop when something like that happens. And when such a tragic event like this happens to you, you really have got to focus on, you know, on the changes it's going to make in your life. And, you know, when a child dies, part of you dies with them, and there's this big void that's left, and you've got, you become a new person. I remember waking up in the mirror and looking at myself and not knowing who I was or how I felt or my thinking had changed so much, and you've got to get to know this person, and you've got to embrace it. The sadness never, never goes away. It never will. I learned that with Nick. Yeah. So you've got to learn to, you know, it's kind of like you draw the line. You've got the sadness on one side, but you can't, you can't ignore the joy and the happiness and, you know, going out with my son and, you know, laughing, having a good time. You've got to live with both of those at the same time. And being an optimist and being so open-minded, I really think that helped me cope with losing Matthew and, you know, being the one to find him and being trained as a first responder. I did necessary steps. I was a first responder first before I was a mother. And, you know, I did what I had to do. I called 911, and then I lost it. So it's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, go, re, going through that. And you just kind of say, well, why did this happen for me? What is this teaching me now? And, you know, what, one thing it's taught me is that for my 11-year-old, I'm never, never going to let him grow up. He's going to stay 11 forever, and I'm going to keep him by my side and hug him and snuggle him as much as I can. You know, things like that. You've got to say, well, why did this happen for me? Why did this happen for Matthew? Was he going down a road that... 
you know, was worse in the future. That was going to be very hard, you know. Was his, you know, purpose completed, what he was supposed to be here for? You know, you've got to kind of keep it on a positive note versus, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to have Christmas again. And his birthday was just May 17th, which was, it was a bittersweet day. You know, his first birthday in heaven and then yeah. you know, his first birthday without him. So, you know, I'm going through the year first, which is always difficult. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about losing a child because it is horrendous. And people say, I can't imagine. And I always say, please don't. You can't imagine it because it's just the worst pain you could ever go through. And a lot of people won't talk about it. But, you know, obviously I'm okay talking about it. And I want to tell people that, you know, it's okay to say things. It's okay to be cry, cry for no reason. Driving down the road and a song comes on and you just bust out into tears. That's okay. That's changing you. That's, you know, take that into something and make it positive, like, you know, remembering the memories. And, you know, you can't feel extreme sorrow unless you felt complete joy. So, you know, embrace that joy and all the memories and all that kind of stuff. And um, I've known a few of my friends have lost either children or grandchildren um, to this as well since Matthew died. And, you know, I'm talking with them and, you know, one hour at a time, focus on this. You know, don't think of it, why is it happening to me? Why is it happening for me? And embrace on that, if that makes any sense at all. It makes a lot of sense, Kimberly, and the reason I wanted you to talk about it is because, <clears throat> I think from my perspective, this is what gives you the heart to talk to people about their problems because people don't come to private investigators because they, everything's going well. They come to private investigators because they're having a problem. Exactly. And so, and, and you know, they're, obviously their problems are the most important things in their life that's going on. So if... if you or I or other private investigators have had our own uh, experiences, like the, hopefully not necessarily as dramatic as what you're talking about, but it does make a difference in how you respond to others. It does, and I think a lot of that is lost in investigations. You know, it be, I know plenty of PIs who, you know, their profession is a, um, you know, take the retainer, do the work, write the report, on to the next case. It's like an assembly line of investigations. And a lot of that human element and the reason behind we're doing this in the first place is lost. And I'm very selective about the cases I take. You know, if I, you know, if there's a true need, um, I've been known to do a lot of pro bono cases just because, you know, something, they're going through something really rough in their life and they need the help. And it's something that's going to, if I have that, that ability to help them through the situation or, help them obtain what is rightfully theirs, then I'm going to do it. And I think, you know, if I was just all about the repo- taking that retainer, hurry up and getting that report out and going on to the next one, you know, we wouldn't be doing our, our duty as a private investigators. I think that's lost a lot, especially, you know, some of these other co- bigger companies and stuff like that. And, you know, if you keep an element on everybody has a story and, you know, add in of the female perspective, the mom perspective, and, you know, everybody jokes around that, you know, I go mother on them. You know, I can give everybody a look or the people that work for me or I give them that look of the mother and they're like, uh-oh, she's going mother on us. You know, that kind of perspective that we bring into investigations is certainly a benefit. Yeah, for sure. Kimberly, we need to take another break. We'll be right back uh-huh. with Kimberly, okay. Kimberly Hamilton. Okay. News. Opinion. Can you hear me? Your 
voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. And here I am with Kimberly Hamilton, private investigator from North Carolina. And we've been talking about the um, contribution of woman investigator makes to the industry versus our male counterparts. And she's also been telling us some personal stories. But um, one of the things I wanted to come back to is her, she has two different companies, the Female Agents Incorporated and Truth Stalkers Incorporated. Kimberly, tell us the difference between those two. Well, the Female Agents Incorporated is our licensed PI agency, and that's what we work um, all our PIs work under, and we take all our cases in, domestics, you know, all kind of cases in there through female agents. Truth Stalkers is a company that we're just now launching up, and our tagline is Investigating Big Truths in Small Town, North Carolina. And we're going to start be, we're in the process of learning how to do podcasts, blogs, and all that kind of stuff, and what we're going to be doing is taking um, some local myths and legends and stories and actually working with Crime Stoppers on some of their unsolved cases and cold cases and stuff like that. And we're going to be working with those and seeing what we can do with them, just, you know, mainly to help out with the community um, as a learning tool and experience. You know, there's, you learn from the most from different cases. You know, you may not be able to work this case, but you're going to learn how to do it. So we're launching Truth Stalkers to start that and inter- be interviewing, you know, some local law enforcement who are retired, some... Um, other people who, like, we have a local legend here of Goat Island, and it's supposed to be this little island that, you know, was just terrible for, you know, children to be around and all that kind of stuff, and we're digging into it, and we're finding out 
It's nothing like that. And being a small town, you know, people like to talk. And when a story like this gets out and it gets spread very quickly, you know, people believe it. And with True Stalkers, we just basically want to find out the truth and expose it a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't want to stir things up a whole lot, but we want to maybe mix it up a little bit. So that's the whole purpose behind True Stalkers. I'm really excited to be launching this. Um, We've had great feedback from it. And the website for that is actually twostalkers.com. And like I said, we're just in the beginning stages and getting this going. So Sounds like fun. Sounds like fun. And uh, while we're talking about it, give your website, uh, which Kim, Kimberly? The uh, website is femaleagentsinvestigations.com, and then twostalkers is twostalkers.com. Okay, great. All right, so I ask you to think about your most inspiring story. Can, can you come up with one? Yeah, I think my most inspiring one is not actually a PI case. I was actually serving papers on a business owner, and this is one of the chapters in my book, and it actually had nothing to do with serving the paper. I was waiting for the owner of the business to come back in a local town, downtown, and he wasn't supposed to be back for, you know, 30 minutes or so, and so I decided to take a walk. And on the bench, right around the corner of the building, was a homeless person, and he was just sitting there by himself. And he didn't look very old. He looked, you know, you could tell his situation. And I don't know what made me do it, but I just walked right up to him, sat down, said hi, told him my name, and asked him his story. And, you know, he was kind of hesitant at first, saying, okay, why is this blonde walking up to me and what's going on? (laughs) Um, He was much more closer to my age than I thought he was. And just by listening to him talk... He was a business owner. He had a family. He um, very successful, involved in this church, you know, with youth activities. And one of his employees invited him to a party, and there was drugs there. And he experimented, and he was instantly addicted. He said that was the changing point in his life. It destroyed his business. It destroyed his family. He lost everything. And this was from a different state. He wasn't even sure what state he was in. And, mm. you know, I was sitting here. This guy was very, very pleasant. He was very sweet. He was very open and honest. And, you know, had I not stopped and asked him, so what's your story? I would have never known. You know, everybody stereotypes homeless people, you know, standing at the corner, sitting in there, oh, they're drug users, they're this, they're that, you know, don't approach mm-hmm. them, don't look at them. And there's a stigma with this. And, you know, you know, I'm guilty of it as well. You know, until the situation, you know, it's like kids, don't walk over that side. You know, you avoid people like that. And it's horrible to say, um, but it's true. And it's, you know, you pull up at a, at a um, streetlight and there's someone there, a homeless person um, with a sign that needing money. And, you know, people judge them. And, you know, they don't really need money. And, you know, what's your situation? Um, but speaking to this man, it really got me to see his side of the story. Um, and just getting to know him and asking questions and him being so humble and open, it really changed my perspective of how I look at people and how I um, approach people. I asked him, I said, I asked him if he wanted to get in touch with his family and I would help him with that. And, you know, he made the comment, they're better off without me. He said, I'm going to die like this. I asked him if I'd give him some money, if he would go get something to eat. And he was honest with me and he said, no, I'll just use it for drugs. Don't give me any money. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take it from you. And it was just Mm -hmm. really, really an eye-opener. 
and inspired me a lot to just, you know, see things differently, not to judge. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Judgment Detox, and I've actually read the entire book, but the only thing that resonated with me that I can think of is, you know, not to judge people. And when you meet somebody, it doesn't matter if you've known them for 10 years or 10 days, you always look at them like you've met them for the very first time. You hold no judgment. You carry over no judgment onto that person. You could take the most difficult person in your life, but every time you see them, you're going to approach them like the very first time. And that's how to get away from being judgmental. And, you know, I really see that with this case. With That's a very good point. Very, very good point. And with him, it was just like, you know, I could have sat there and judged him and kept on walking and never stopped and learned anything. I mean, he taught me more than I than I could ever imagine. And, you know, I when I left, I gave him a hug, and he made a joke about getting a hug, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it was very, very pleasant. And we actually had somebody at the stoplight. He rolled down his window and asked me if I was okay. And I was just, like, boiling really? at that point. Yes. And, you know, because, you know, I was professionally dressed, and, you know, he was who he was, and this person was just concerned for my safety. And although I appreciate that, it still really ticked me off that he was being so judgmental. And, you know, I just kind of wiped him off and said, we're fine. And I felt horrible for, um, his name was Daryl, for Daryl for sitting there, you know, having to experience that. But it got to see, you know, I saw the people walking by. I saw them go around us and try to avoid us. So it was really, it was really a real eye-opener for me. And it really inspired me to change the way I see people mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. think and about being judgmental. That's a great story. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons in that story. Uh, The judgmental part about it, approaching people, um, you know, good for you. Good for you. Because you're right, everybody does have a story. Yes, they do. So so that was one that you just happened, happened on. Do you have another one that you felt was particularly inspiring or challenging? I had one that was, and it's so funny because I get teased about this case a lot, and it was actually a missing dog case. And the PIs that I work with at the time, you know, they were, they teased me a lot about, oh, what's next week, a cat up a tree, but, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. But there was, I had an elderly couple who around Thanksgiving contacted me, and their Labrador was missing. And, you know, given where they lived and, you know, their property and their neighborhood, it made absolutely no sense. And I actually do a lot of animal abuse and um, neglect cases. You know, local law enforcement, if somebody moves away and a dog's abandoned, you know, they'll call me to take over the case. And I have resources where I can take the animal and get them adopted and get them care. But I will try to track down the owners and get them prosecuted for animal neglect. Well, so this was actually my first animal case and kind of inspired all this. And, you know, I met with this couple. They were absolutely heartbroken. Their dog was their baby. Um, And it made absolutely no sense that this dog just up and disappeared as they were bringing in groceries. And, you know, I was like, I don't know if I could help these people. You know, I wanted to. I wanted to find their dog more than I wanted to find any other case I've had. I wanted to find that dog more than anything just because, you know, it was touching to me and, you know, seeing them so heartbroken. So I did some little digging around, and they had a neighbor that was having a garage poured at the time the dog went missing. And I actually got in contact with the crew who was pouring the foundation, which is what happened that day. And I got their supervisor on the phone, and he told me to call this person. 
um, who was like the next person under him who handled the crew. And when I talked to him, he became very defensive. And he said, well, you need, if you wanted to find out anything about the dog, you need to contact these two people. And he gave me their names, and they were Hispanic names, and they were very common Hispanic names. And that's all I had to go on. It turned out they were brothers. Well, I wanted to find them and ask them questions because I'm thinking they took the dog. Well, I got some information. I found out where they lived, and I did a drive-by of their residence. And what I saw was horrifying. There were dogs chained up all. It was a dirt road, and there were several mobile homes on there. And their mobile home was surrounded by trees, and there were several dogs just chained up randomly with trees, no dog houses, nothing. Um, I went down, came back around, and I saw a deceased dog in a ditch. And, you know, being involved in what I did, I kind of knew what I was leading on to. So I called a local deputy, and I said, I got this address, and it just seems something fishy. And he goes, yes, we do know about the house. We know what's going on, and they suspect dog fighting. And I'm like, suspect this is definitely something going on. I said, I have a case where I'm looking for a dog, and I would love to go back there and see, but I'm not going to do it alone. He's like, I'll meet you there the next day. Um, do not go on that property. So we did. We went out there. I couldn't, I'd never found the dog. Um, we found another deceased dog, and I mean, it was oh, heartbreaking. Wow. It was, and yeah. dog fighting is very prominent here in North Carolina as well, and those are very, very hard cases to work, by the way. And you have to have a really tough heart and control not to shoot somebody when you come across those operations. <laughs> so it was a really emotional case for me. And, you know, I didn't find their dog. I went back. I didn't even tell my clients of what I had found because I didn't want them to thinking, you know, their dog was used as bait or was taken for mm-hmm. this kind mm-hmm. of operation. So I continued my search. I notified all the vets. I called around to all the um, rescue groups, got pictures of the dog. Um, I had one a vet call me and say, hey, we had a lamb brought in that looks just like your dog. He's got a broken leg or an injured leg. Um, so I called my clients and said, hey, there's a vet near your house. They've got a black lab. Let's go over and see. And it was yeah. not their dog. It was a much younger dog. It's not their dog. Oh, it wow. wasn't their dog. And it was, this was getting closer to Christmas time. It was just heartbreaking. It was so challenging for me yeah. because I wanted answers. That dog went somewhere. And, you know, finding out, I had a feeling where he went, but I wanted to rule out all the other possibilities of finding him. Um, and you're right. Some, some, uh, some cases are very heartbreaking, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, they are. Really, we're, we're out of time. We're completely out of Ooh. time. And thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope to meet you in person uh, soon. And um, uh, for the rest of you, it's PIC Classified. I'm Francis Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com.